Hello once again, everyone, and welcome to episode 97 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane, back 50 years, and we report on all the hockey news that was prominent at that time. This is the third season of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, and a little shorter this week because we went a little longer last week. We are looking at September 1st to September 5th, 1971. Well, it is uh, getting to September now, and football is right around the corner. Get in on all the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Football League. And with the NFL returning, DraftKings is giving new customers $200 in free bets instantly when you bet $1 or more on any football game. Listen up, because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and place a bet of $1 or more on any week one game to receive $200 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. And for week one, DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at a $1 million top prize. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching a game quite like having a free shot at a million-dollar top prize. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and use promo code THPN, that's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network, to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game and get a free shot at a million-dollar top prize with your first deposit. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official betting partner of the National Football League. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. This is for new customers only. A minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager is required, one per customer, and restrictions do apply. In addition to DraftKings, of course, we're sponsored by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive where we get the bulk, uh, get to do the bulk of our research. And of course, don't forget, we are also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colburn, Ontario. And if you like what we do here on Twitter every day and each week on the podcast, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast, but we have some really neat special content that we've developed just for our subscribers. That's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe and all you that have been subscribing we thank you so much for your support it helps us keep the lights on here so this week we're uh, entering into the month of september 1971 and for me september 1st was always the unofficial end of at least my summer and for our podcast september marks the beginning of another hockey season and for this podcast this is our third season 
And I can't quite believe we're here, really. I never dreamed that this would be more than a one. In fact, I didn't think we'd make it to the end of the first season. I didn't think there would be the interest that there's been. And we've been gratified to see how many of you are sticking with us through all this. Uh, It's been a great ride so far. We're going to keep it up as long as we can. Uh, This has been an amazing learning experience for me. And uh, I expect the same for this upcoming 1971-72 season. Last week, in last week's show, I should say, we covered a little more than a week because we we were getting to the end of August and I wanted to cut it, cut it off at month's end. So this week is a little shorter, but you won't believe how much hockey news was actually coming out so early in September. We found it really a very interesting week and we'll start off with... Uh, some quick hits before we get to what turned out to be some really blockbuster news out of Toronto that we'll give you a little later on. Well, the Montreal Canadiens started things off, started the the month off with an announcement of a very big signing for that team. Frank Mahovlich agreed to his 1971-72 contract with the Habs. It was, as most of them were at this time, a one-year deal, and as usual, the financial terms were not disclosed either by Frank or by the team. And they followed those signings up later in the wink with a couple of more fellas that uh, are pretty important to the team, goalie Rokachan Vashon and young forward Mark Tardif. And uh, Tardif especially will probably be coming into his own this season. We had a feeling that he was ready to break out and become a regular in the NHL. A former NHL star who retired uh, during last season, uh, actually at the end of last season, was Earl Ingerfield. And he was named the new coach of the Regina Pats of the Western Canada Junior Hockey League. Earl, who played in New York for the Rangers, Seals, and Penguins, he succeeds Bob Turner, who actually resigned from the team just a week before, resigned as coach, in order to take over the scouting department of the California Golden Seals. Turner, by the way, he'd been working for the Seals on a part-time basis for the past two or three years, and once Gary Young took over as general manager, Bob uh, made his way into taking over the the scouting department and a good friend of mine Ed Chadwick was a scout with the Seals at that time and uh, he thought he he mentions just what a dysfunctional organization the team had been up to that point. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association announced that it is standing firm on most international ice hockey competition, meaning, of course, that Canada will not send teams to the World Championships or to the Olympics in 1972. But Canada has relented slightly by giving permission for a Canadian team to participate in the World Student Games, which is going to be held in Lake Placid, New York this winter. The Canadian Intercollegiate Athletic Union had selected Tom Watt, who is a coach of the University of Toronto Blues, to organize a team to attend the games at Lake Placid, which take place February 25th to March 5th, 1972. And we will have coverage when that takes place. 
The Detroit Red Wings don't open training camp until September 10th, but already the team at the 1st of September was preparing for the start of the season. General Manager Ned Harkness ordered team doctors and trainers from the Wings and the farm clubs to undergo a three-day program to standardize and improve the club's medical practices. Under the direction of team doctors John Finley and Milson Cosley, the clinic will give trainers up-to-date methods to treat injured players and speed up the recovery. More importantly, we want our trainers to learn ways to prevent injuries through player conditioning, said General Manager Harkness. Now, a lot of things have been said about Ned Harkness. I have absolutely no use for the guy in most areas, but this was an area in the early 1970s that really needed to be shored up, and at least Ned Harkness was taking steps to do exactly that. Lefty Wilson, the Wings trainer for the last 21 years, and his assistant, which is Danny Olesevich, a Port Coburn native, by the way, plus Jerry Strong from the Fort Worth Wings farm team, Alan Coates from Tidewater of the AHL, and Ken Houston of the Port Huron Wings, were studying under Dr. Don Graham, a physiotherapist at the Detroit Osteopathic Hospital. One thing we didn't know about in all the trials and tribulations the Vancouver Canucks were undergoing with their their financial and their ownership situation, a Toronto group was quietly working behind the scenes to try and gain control of the Vancouver club, but earlier in the week, they stepped out of the picture as possible bidders for the Canucks. John Bassett, publisher of the Toronto Telegram, told The Sun that... I advised Bill Winnett that we had taken a policy decision not to pursue the Vancouver franchise. Winnett is the executive vice president of Northwest Sports, which is the Canadian parent company of the Canucks. Now, those of you that know John Bassett know that he he, uh, holds the position of chairman of the board of Maple Leaf Gardens. Well, just hang on, because later in the show... We will have news about Bassett's position with the Maple Leafs as well. Well, with the addition of 5,000 seats to Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, the Sabres are busy preparing for the upcoming season, and they have a problem that most expansion teams didn't have in the first few rounds of NHL expansion. A 5,000-seat balcony boosting the capacity of Memorial Auditorium from 10,000 to 15,000 fans will not even come close to meeting the demand when the Sabres open their second National Hockey League season in October. The Sabres, who already have sold more than 13,000 season tickets, and I was part of a group that was some of the original uh, subscribers, they were swamped by mail yesterday when 15, which was, this was on Wednesday, this was being reported, but they were swamped by mail when 1,500 individual game tickets went on sale. Only letters that had been postmarked September 1st or later were being processed 
for the mail order sale and hundreds of fans swamped the main Buffalo post office. A special window had to be opened at the post office to hand stamp letters addressed to the Buffalo Sabres Hockey Club. Sabres Administrative Vice President Dave Foreman said that only letters postmarked September 1st or later would be accepted and processed for the tickets. Those received prior to September 1st, well, they're being returned back to the sender. And and Foreman, Foreman said they actually had received about 500 of those letters already. Foreman said, what we really need here in Buffalo is a 20,000-seat arena to handle all the requests for tickets. Withheld from the mail order and season ticket sales were a 1,000 individual game tickets to be sold five games in advance of each of these games. The Sabres, who had an average attendance of 9,100 last season, finished the year with 23 sellouts in 39 games in the very first season. And a little bit more Buffalo news this week as well. Richard Martin, the Montreal Junior Canadiens record breaker with 71 goals in the OHA Junior A Series last year, came to terms this week with the team that drafted him fifth overall, the Buffalo Sabres. Montreal lawyer Larry Sazant negotiated the terms with Sabres general manager Punch Imlach, who took the 20-year-old Martin, as we said, in that first round at Sabres' first choice in the June draft. Sazant said that Martin has been signed to a two-year contract that compares very favorably with the salary and bonus clauses given by other NHL teams to their top draft picks. Richard Martin, welcome to Buffalo. Okay, this next piece uh, doesn't seem to be earth-shaking, but to me, this was an extremely big deal and a reminder that at age 20, as much as we would like them to, things always change, never staying as they are, and we're never staying as how we would like them to be. The Toronto edition of Hockey Night in Canada this season will have a new host, Ward Cornell, stepping down from that position after a decade in the spotlight. But as of early September, no successor had yet been chosen. There was a ton of speculation who was going to get the job. But we must admit, the fellow who landed the host position was not on anyone's radar. Well, the Bruins were happy that one thing was staying the same, at least for the next two years, and that was Milt Schmidt, the general manager of the team, who has molded the Bruins into a National Hockey League powerhouse, received a new two-year contract to continue as the team's general manager. The Bruins also signed a winger Ace Bailey to his 71-72 contract. Bailey had 11 goals and 11 assists in what was basically, I guess you'd say, part-time duty with the Bruins last year. And uh, he got a one-year contract. He got a bit of a raise, but he had some uh, some injury problems, busted ankle, I think, that slowed him down the last couple of years. Ace Bailey, though, a very valuable member of the Bruins, not so much 
for uh, what guys like Johnny Busick, Phil Esposito, and the others do in scoring goals. Ace Bailey, a great team guy and the type of glue that holds a team together. And all teams need a guy like Ace Bailey. You may remember that uh, last spring the Bruins and Canadians met in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Well, the mayor of Boston, Kevin White, and his Montreal counterpart, Jean Drapeau, made a friendly wager. And Mayor White paid off because, of course, the Canadians eliminated the Bruins last year. The bet, of course, was on the outcome of the Boston-Montreal quarterfinal series. And uh, White... uh, Said he had to pay up. It was time. And so uh, he, he said to Drapeau, I know you will find the lobsters and Boston baked beans to be a tasty delicacy and certainly more appetizing than the crow we are eating here in Boston. By the way, had Boston won, Mayor Drapeau would have sent to Mayor White a whole bunch, several gallons, in fact, of Quebec maple syrup you may remember all the drama and confusion around the ownership of the flyers and the the spectrum arena in philadelphia in the first couple years of expansion well a judge lent some clarity to the arena situation this week a complicated financial reorganization plan that would give operational control of the spectrum arena to the owners of the Philadelphia Flyers has been approved by federal Jewish district judge Leon Higginbotham, Philadelphia, in he accepted that plan on Wednesday. It's a plan proposed by the Flyers owner Edward Snyder and his brother-in-law Earl Foreman. The two also own the Virginia Squires of the American Basketball Association. The Snyder-Foreman plan would include paying off in full all claims and mortgages against the indoor sports arena, which amounts to a total of about $10 million. That's $10,971,000, by the way. The city of Philadelphia, which owns the building, would get some $75,000 a year out of the deal, and that would come from rent and a share of the parkings and concession. Judge Hagenbotham said the plan must be approved, however, by the Security and Exchange Commission. Flyers were busy uh, signing some players as well. They got left wingers Rick McLeish and Bob Houndog Kelly under contract, along with defenseman Larry Brown, center Jimmy Johnson, and right winger Lou Morrison. Now, Joe Watson also said that he uh, was thinking of retiring during the summer, but he signed his contract just before the end of the week as well. So the Flyers doing well getting guys to sign on the dotted line. Seems this time of the year there's more news coming out of the courts concerning hockey than coming out of the rinks or the boardrooms and a little more this week. Uh, First up, the Court of Queen's Bench in Quebec will review a case against Mike Mike Bloom, who is a player with the St. Catharines Blackhawks of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series. And this will take place at the Fall Assizes 
of what is basically in Ontario what we call high court. Bloom is charged with assaulting a Quebec City police officer during a brawl which erupted in a game against the Quebec Remparts of the Quebec Junior A Hockey League during the Memorial Cup playoffs of last spring. When his case came up on June 10th, lawyer Guy Bertrand presented two motions asking that the complaint against Bloom be thrown out. Sessions Judge Yvonne Sirwa accepted an argument that Bloom's summons was invalid because it was not drawn up in English, but rejected a motion saying the charge did not contain the information required to draw up a defense. Mr. Bertrand obtained a ruling by the Court of Queen's Bench Tuesday ordering the review of Judge Sirwa's ruling. And yet another court case sort of involving hockey. Well, yeah, it involves a very prominent hockey personality. Larry Regan, the general manager of the Los Angeles Kings of the National Hockey League, was remanded to October 29th for a hearing in Hull, Quebec court on a charge of dangerous driving. That's right, dangerous driving. With Judge Frank Dunlop of Renfrew County Court, Reagan was arrested by Low Provincial Police in June after a high-speed auto chase on Highway 11 near Casabaswa, about 45 miles north of Ottawa. Judge Dunlap, who was originally charged with common assault of a police officer, which was later reduced to obstructing a police officer, well, he is to appear on September 17th to set a date for his trial. A little bit of Vancouver Canucks player news, at least this isn't uh, to do with the ownership. Uh, Bob Dunn, a Vancouver hockey writer, reports that Dale Talon's negotiating problems were so serious that he let his lawyer agree to terms, and Charlie Hodge's retirement plans were so definite that he hadn't even heard about it. Al Eagleson agreed to a one-year contract with the Canucks on Wednesday of this week on behalf of Dale Talon. Charlie Hodge, who had left, as we told you, left uh, Montreal last week, had gotten to Vancouver this week, and it's, it sounds to Dunn like Hodge is going to agree to a similar similar one-year contract uh, long before training camp starts, and he should be playing for the Canucks this year. Now, Talon wasn't happy with the Canucks' original contract offer, and Eagleson advised him to negotiate personally with general manager Bud Poyle during the weekend. Talon was in town, but Poyle never heard from him until Tuesday night. The 20-year-old defenseman, who uh, will be in his second National Hockey League season this year, called Poyle from the airport as he left for, of all places, Hawaii, and said, whatever Eagleson says is fine with me, or words to that effect. So Wednesday, Poyle and Eagleson came to an agreement, and all is happy. By the way, Dale Talon headed to Hawaii, probably to play golf. Now, Charlie Hodge, who spent six weeks at his other home in Montreal, still hadn't seen his new contract, so he hasn't even had a chance to become a holdout. My attentions will uh, depend on their intentions, said Hodge. Uh, his contract was sent to his North Vancouver address, and of course, he was in Montreal. So 
It ended up back in the uh, Canucks offices with a stamp of return to sender. Hodge knows one of last year's goalies won't be around because Poyle is adamant on sticking with only two this season, not three. But he's in Vancouver, and Charlie says he's staying. And speaking of goaltenders, Seth Martin, former goaltender with the National Hockey League St. Louis Blues, was named this week as coach and general manager of the legendary senior team, the Trail Smoke Eaters of the Western International Hockey League. Now, Martin was with St. Louis in their inaugural season in the NHL, but he's probably more famous for being a star goaltender for Canada in international amateur hockey, and he was the goalie for the Trail Smoke Eaters when they won the World Championships in 1961. And I remember that series so well. That's when I heard the name Seth Martin. thought it was a pretty interesting name for a goalkeeper. I listened to those games on the radio at all hours, and it was really interesting to hear it. And so I'd been following Seth Martin ever since then, and I was really happy to see him play with the Blues. And now he is running the team for whom he starred. Even though he will probably be in the National Hockey League Hall of Fame someday, Tim Horton doesn't like to talk about hockey. He'd rather talk about his donuts. Now, Tim was in Pittsburgh this week looking for a winter home after he signed the biggest contract in the Pittsburgh Penguins history, but he gave only brief, uninformative answers when reporters were asking him hockey questions. But... When the subject of his chain of donut shops in Toronto was brought up, what well, Tim babbled on with about 24 shops in operation and five more under construction. As you can see, Horton said, I'd rather talk a lot more about my business than about hockey. Horton plays a better game of hockey than he talks. It's always been that way with Tim, very soft-spoken guy. He was six times a National Hockey League All-Star defenseman during his career with the Maple Leafs and uh, last year with the Rangers. The Penguins got him during the summer when the Rangers left him unprotected in the interleague draft. He told the Rangers he was going to retire at the end of last season, and so he basically said, look elsewhere for a veteran defenseman. I'm not coming back. But guess what? Red Kelly, Tim's old friend, teammate, a veteran of the wars of four Stanley Cups with Toronto. Well, Red got Tim to reconsider. He gave him a $100,000 a year contract. And Tim is back in the NHL for at least one more season. Tim Horton wasn't the only guy to sign with the Penguins this week. They also got two young forwards who are very uh, central in the team's plans. Uh, right winger Jean Pronovo and center Syl Apps Jr. both signed their contracts with the Penguins this week as well. Well, we were talking about Larry Regan's uh, legal woes a little earlier. I wanted to have a little separation between that and the actually hockey stuff. Uh, Regan, the brilliant, and if you don't believe that, just ask him. He'll tell you. The brilliant GM of the Kings. He was talking Kings training camp this week. Uh, the report says that the Kings will score a first in the NHL 
this uh, week as they announce their training camp plans. Larry Regan has invited 29 amateurs to report a week early to the Victoria British Columbia uh, training site for a rookie camp, which seems to be the first of its kind in the NHL. All told, 70 players will attend the Kings camp. There will be nine amateurs and 41 pros, as well as these other guys that are coming. The pros check in September 11th, and they begin two-a-day drills the very next morning. By bringing the amateur guys in a week early, I'll be able to judge each of them much better, says Regan. Before, Regan says, when we threw them in with the pros right away, they didn't have the proper time to work with them or the context to see how they were actually without competing against the smart veterans. Regan expects to cut the number of amateurs in camp to 10 by the time the pros arrive on the 11th of September. Larry says, I'm doing it at the opposite of what most pro sports teams would do. I'm looking at the kids early, so I'll be able to do what I have planned when the pros arrive for the official opening of our main training camp. Some more contract news. This from the California Golden Seals. The first batch of Oakland Seals went through contract arbitration this week in Toronto, but the decisions and the cases were still pending by the time the week had drawn to a close. When the decisions were forthcoming, they will be final and they will be binding. The players and the team are bound to the verdict whether they like it or not. Submitting the disputed cases to arbiter Ed Houston who's an Ottawa lawyer we told you about before, uh, from the Seals were Billy Hickey, Gary Crotto, Gary Jarrett, goalie Gary Smith, and forward Wayne Carlton, who of course was acquired this summer from the Boston Bruins. Of the five, Carlton did not play for Oakland last season, as we mentioned. He was picked up in the uh, interleague draft, but it was more, it seemed like a prearranged uh, transaction and he really figures to be one of the big hopes for the seals this season the seals have eight signatures on the dotted line as of this point in september and there's quite a few other players who apparently are close to agreement but nobody's saying too much on either side with that but John Porter of the Oakland Tribune says there are probably going to be some more SEALs who want to go to arbitration. Now you have to remember with the SEALs, anyone on the team's protected list or a veteran of 50 NHL games last season will be barred from attending training camp, which opens, by the way, in just a week or two, as everyone knows, if they don't sign a contract. This is an NHL rule, and that could keep about nine other players out of camp if they can't come to terms. Now, it's no secret that uh, many of the SEALs players are bitter about an across-the-board wipeout of bonus and incentive clauses for the players' contracts. It's also no secret that the team was the worst 
in the NHL last season. Still to be determined is the effect of President Nixon's freeze on NHL salaries, and we heard enough about that when we talked about Bobby Orr's contract in a previous episode. Now, most of the players, John Porter adds, for those Oakland fans who may not be aware, are Canadian, and it's just not clear how they will be affected by all this. We have some news from the New York Rangers on their training camp, thanks to the New York Times great hockey writer Gerald Eskenazi. With no contract disputes worth mentioning, the Rangers open training camp next Saturday, which is what we're talking about this week, barely four months after they played their last NHL game. That'll be the end of this week that we're talking about. It'll be a very different camp from the one that took place uh, in Kitchener a year ago. Four Rangers stars, Vic Hatfield, Brad Park, Walter Kachuk, and Jean Rattel were embroiled at that time in a very well-publicized salary dispute that ranged all the way from humorous to acrimonious. They all, of course, did eventually get resolved. None of the three lines that emerged from camp last season was intact by the end of the long campaign. There probably will be a fair amount of shuffling during this training camp with the possibility that only one Ranger forward line will remain as it was last season. The month-long training camp will see special attention paid to youngsters Ab DeMarco and Pierre Jerry, both rookies who hope to make the team after playing for Omaha of the Central League last season. A real strong battle should develop on the right side for the Rangers, where Billy Fairbairn, Rod Gilbert, Bruce McGregor will be uh, incumbents, Bobby Russo plays right wing most of the time and also plays center. He was picked up from Minnesota for Bob Nevin, who's now departed. And that should give the Rangers some real good uh, uh, action on the right side. And the veteran Ron Stewart is still with the club, along with Jerry, Pierre Jerry, and another youngster, Jack Eagers. Lots of competition on the right side. Steve Vickers is the Ranger number one draft pick this past June. He's going to be... Uh, uh, looking at right wing, but there is talk that Emil Francis may shift the youngster to the left side where the Rangers could use a little shoring up. Uh, another youngster that is looking to make the Rangers right out of junior is Steve Durbano, uh, well known to our hockey fans in Ontario, not so well known to fans in the States, but Steve Durbano's name will be very prominent over the next few years. Unfortunately, it won't always be for his hockey skill. The left wing spot should be a little less confusing as we mentioned. They're thinking of putting Vickers over there. You got Vic Hadfield, Ted Irvin, and Dave Ballone as incumbents as well, but they're going to need somebody in case any of these guys go down. They're all starting to get a little older, and that means the injuries take a little longer to heal. The Toronto Maple Leafs cleared up their most difficult salary hurdle for this fall when general manager Jim Gregory convinced team captain Dave Keon to sign his 1971-72 contract. Now, if you remember last year at this time, if you've been with us, Keon was a stubborn negotiator. 
It was rumored that he wanted $125,000, and he made it quite clear he was not going to sign, although he wouldn't name the exact number. He said he would not sign for anything less than what he wanted. And at one point, Dave walked out of training camp, and he missed several preseason games. Well, Gregory got him to agree to terms after much wrangling, and many figured that this problem was one of the reasons the Leafs had such a slow start last year with only four wins in their first 15 games. The terms of Keon's contract this year were, of course, not announced, as they said, in keeping with club policy. However, it can be assumed the deal makes Keon the most highly paid player in the Maple Leafs' long history. It is reported that if he clicks on all the bonuses, he will hit the $100,000 mark, although his base pay is probably well below that figure. Another quick note here that we hadn't uh, forgot to, or we forgot to mention about the Buffalo Sabres. And I found this very, very, very interesting. One of the great wrestlers in the Niagara area, wrestling was very big in our area. One of the great ones was Fred Atkins, a tough old uh, dog. He was just a, a really tough guy. Had a, he looked like uh, he had ears that were cauliflower ears. Uh, he used to actually, my dad used to work on Fred's car, and this is why I knew him. And he was... Uh, signed by the Buffalo Sabres this week to help get the players in fighting shape. They don't know if this is going to be a great example to the players, whether it's going to work, but Atkinson, who I, I really didn't know, no one really knew how old he was. He was in tip-top shape well, well into his later in life, and he was there, and he was going to be the guy that would get the Sabres players in shape, and this was quite big news around our area. The Detroit Red Wings by this time in September had signed all of their players except for number one draft pick, number two overall, Marcel Dion. Alan Eagleson represents Dion as well as Mickey Redmond and Tim Ecclestone with the Red Wings. And he had said that uh, it, it's quite likely Dion will have no problems agreeing to terms with the Red Wings, and that should happen well before the training camp for the Wings begins at Port Huron, Ontario, in September 11th. A little bit more arbitration news. While the Canadians did get some guys under contract this week, two players are going to arbitration with Mr. Ed Houston. They are Peter Mahovlich and the young right winger Phil Roberto, I don't know whether Roberto ought to be uh, causing any problems with contracts. He got in enough hot water this offseason when he got arrested for causing a disturbance in Niagara Falls, and that still hasn't been dealt with by the courts yet. And that brings us to the final story of the week and the biggest story of the week, probably. This is... Uh, not the cause of the Maple Leafs' problems for the next 50 years. At least up till now, they still haven't won another Stanley Cup. The team has never been really where it should have been except a couple of near misses uh, in the 90s. But this was a catalyst that enabled the hot mess that the Maple Leafs were about to become to actually take place. I'll read the story. There, there's maybe some very dry stuff in here about finances and that, but I want to give you uh, the whole story. In fact, the Toronto Star sports editor, Jim Proudfoot, put this, this report together 
of how the news broke in 1971. Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe acquired total control of Maple Leaf Gardens when they completed arrangements to purchase 196,220 shares controlled by Telegram, Toronto Telegram newspaper publisher John Bassett. The deal was worth $5,886,600 and it was scheduled to be closed at the downtown office of the Toronto Dominion Bank on Monday and they're lending the money to Ballard and Smythe. Negotiations for this purchase were concluded late Sunday evening. The transfer price agreed upon was $30 a share, slightly above yesterday's market figure, which was $29.25. The signing ceremony was arranged in the office of Alan T. Lambert, Toronto Dominion Chairman and President. The Bassett stock mostly held by the Telegram Publishing Company, represents more than 25% of all Maple Leaf Garden shares and its acquisitions give Ballard and Smythe, the self-styled Gold Dust Twins, roughly 70% of the Maple Leaf shares between them. Today's purchase was divided evenly, 98,110 shares or 2,943,300 worth apiece. In another transaction consummated yesterday as well, this is Monday we're talking, and announced today, Baton Broadcasting Limited, a company that John Bassett controls, acquired 99.45% of the Toronto Argonaut Football Club for roughly $2.25 million. Bassett again through the Telegram Publishing Company was one of the major shareholders involved in that purchase. Stafford Smythe is president of the Gardens and Harold Ballard is the executive vice president. Bassett was chairman of the board of directors until he resigned this past January. In buying out their former partner, Ballard and Smythe are merely exercising a privilege agreed upon in November of 1961 when the three of them bought control of the gardens from Con Smythe, who of course is Staff's father. At that time, they acquired about 20% of the stock each, and that was at a cost of 40 bucks a share. And they decided that if any of them ever decided to sell, he would give the others the right of first refusal on per on purchase of his shares, whichever one wanted to get out. That original stock was split five ways in 1965 so that those 40 items in effect are selling today, almost 10 years later, for $150. That was after the 61 purchase. Smythe and Ballard are, of course, awaiting trial on charges of income tax evasion, $278,930 in Smythe's case, and $134,685 for Ballard. In addition, they are scheduled to appear in court September 27th when a date will be set for their trial on charges of theft and fraud 
involving what else? Stocks and securities worth $478,000. And doesn't there have an odor to this particular transaction? Maple Leaf Gardens, of course, has been a hugely lucrative uh, investment over the decades since Ballard, Smythe, and Bassett acquired control. Interest in the Maple Leaf Hockey Club has remained high. Home games are automatic sellouts these days, always have been, and the steadily increasing prices have not at all affected uh, attendance. The Ballard Smythe operation has increased the buildings used for other events, concerts, and the like, and most of the, most of them are promoted by the gardens itself. And the gardens received more than $3 million through the addition of the six franchises in the National Hockey League in the 66-67 season, and of course the two more added last year. In confirming the sale, John Bassett said, the complete holdings which I represent, those of the Telegram Publishing Company and of Baton Broadcasting and the personal holdings of directors of both companies and the members of their immediate families have been sold to Smythe and Ballard. At $30 a share, the Telegram Publishing Company collects $4,350,000. This was the thing that gave Ballard and Smythe undisputed, complete control of the Maple Leaf franchise. As we go on through this autumn, there will be other developments, developments that will greatly affect John Bassett and uh, his whole livelihood and will affect the ownership of the Maple Leafs even further. Stay tuned. This is a critical period in the Maple Leafs history. And if you don't know all the history and the details of the history that got to the Maple Leafs to where they ended up as being basically a shit show of an operation, then then stay tuned. Follow us on this and you're going to learn some things and maybe give a little context to what a hot mess the Maple Leafs became and why it happened that way. So that, my friends, is this week's show, the first one of season three of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We're so happy to be back here for another year. But what did we learn in this very first season three show? Well, we learned that the biggest contract in Pittsburgh hockey history goes to an aging 41-year-old donut salesman who also happens to be a Hall of Fame defenseman, Tim Horton. We learned that, of course, optimism is not in short supply as teams were signing players left and right and announcing training camp plans. And we saw this huge change in the ownership and operation of the Toronto Maple Leafs, a change that would shape the future of the franchise for decades and not in a good way. So what do we have for week two of season three for you next week? Well, while teams were getting ready for the 71-72 season, a sudden retirement will shake the hockey world to its core. And so while one superstar is leaving the scene, another superstar will sign a very rich four-year contract. And we're going to hear about a trade between the California Golden Seals and the Chicago Blackhawks that turns into a very big headache 
for the National Hockey League, and you'll hear all about that. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for what he do. He's a true media professional. He does a great job on this thing. Makes it sound almost professional. Well, actually, the part that he does is very professional. Our intro and exit music comes from the Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, and uh, we thank them for the use of their music. You ever get a chance to see them perform live? Don't miss the opportunity. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Andy also produces podcasts. If you want to put something together, get a hold of me. I'll hook you up with them and maybe you can work something out. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and of course you can get us each week on the Hockey Podcast Network. Don't forget our Patreon page, patreon.com slash hockey50years. If you'd like to su- subscribe, you can help us keep the lights on and do even better research for better content. Thanks to everyone who tunes into our show. It's going to be a great 1971-72 season. I can't wait for it to get underway. And we're going to be with you. Hope you'll be with us. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks, when the hot shakes.